Most of you remember back in 2010 when the mine shaft in Chile collapsed, leaving 33 men trapped over 2,000 feet underground for 69 days. I mean, can you even imagine that situation for those men? The collapse happens, you manage to stay alive, you're with your fellow workers, and it dawns on you how deeply encased you are in the earth. It was something like 3,000 miles from the opening those men came into. That's where they were. They were three miles. Did I say 3,000? They were three miles in. Not 3,000, that's a lot. But three miles in, uh, they were under all of that weight and gravel. And I think the, the only thought in my mind would be this. I'm done. Th- this, is, this is it. This little pocket of space that me and these 32 other men are in, we are all there, and this is it. Of course, they found these workers. Miraculously, they enacted a plan to set them free from the earth to something of the tune of $20 million it took to extract these men from the ground. But 69 days, a chunk of those days wondering, what's going to become of me? I mean, you'd be thinking about your family and scrolling through your memories and just thinking about how they would be feeling, how they wouldn't be able to be provided for by your work and all of those things. So many thoughts would be going through your mind at the forefront, certainly, is that I am going to die. But can you imagine The feeling of those men as they realized they were found. And they realized and heard through messages that they were building some sort of capsule that would bring them out. To get onto that capsule that was made for them. To ride on it. To come out 2,000 feet from underground. And to touch solid ground again. To touch your family again. What a feeling that must have been for them. And as I got to thinking about these men underground in relation to our text... I realized something very simple. That those 33 men that were stuck underground for almost 70 days, they did not save themselves, did they? There was nothing that these men could have done to get out of that pocket of space underground. They could have never seen the light of day on their own. What did they need? They needed help from above ground. They needed those to gather around and to get the funds and to build the capsule and so forth and drill through to get to those men. They needed help from above. And friends, the same is with us in a spiritual sense. That we were in a state to be pitied far above what these miners were ever in. That spiritually speaking, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following after the prince of the power of the air, conceived in sin the sinful children of Adam and Eve, and there was absolutely nothing that we could have done to save ourselves from the pit. We needed help from above. It was all of God. The famous verse, for by grace are you saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And it's on this truth that you could not save yourselves. It's on this truth of the gospel that He is the one who enacted the plan to save you from your sins. It is on that truth that our text is resting on this morning. Specifically what you see in verses 12 to 14. You see the word qualified in verse 12. It could also be translated enabled. Who is the one that that qualified or enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints? It is God. 
God is the one who enabled you and qualified you. This is, this is not your work. This is God's work. What about those famous verses, uh, verse 13 and 14 there? Who has delivered us? It says, He has delivered us. He has transferred us. In the Son, we have redemption and forgiveness. So we did not deliver ourselves from the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. Like those miners, we could have never delivered ourselves. We could have never transferred ourselves from the ground to, to, to the upper level, from in the ground to on top of ground. We could have never delivered ourselves from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus. It was totally the work of God. That he was the one who delivered. He was the one who transferred. He's the one who provided all that we need in redemption and forgiveness. And so it's in light of this great truth, in light of the gospel, that Paul gives this prayer for the Colossians. So in light of that, in light of the truth, that God is the one who delivered us from darkness and brought us to light, how then do we live? How do we live in light of that great of a truth? Paul mentions walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. In, all, in light of all that God has done for us, how do we walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord? And I think that Paul, in this prayer for the Colossians here, he gives us a few things to consider and to think about in how to walk worthy of the Lord. And first, in verse 9, Paul prays that God would fill the Colossians with all knowledge. And that's found on the back of your bulletin, by the way, if you're looking for an outline to follow. Verse 9, look there with me. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There is certainly a sense, like the Bible says, that the secret things belong to God. There are great, heady, great truths that we could never uh, uh, bring our minds to. We could never apprehend the secret things belonging to God. The Bible, of course, references God as being omniscient. It teaches He is omniscient, which means that He knows all things. He's the one that has even determined all things. He knows all outcomes. There is nothing that, God, that can take God off of His guard. Yet there are things, in spite of the fact that God has secret things that He knows and He uh, has determined, there are things that are not secret. There are things that He has revealed to us. This word for knowledge that he prays is a word which actually means great knowledge. You remember when we talked last week about that group called the Gnostics? And they were the people who thought that they were in the know, right? Well, this word for knowledge, it's interesting that Paul's bringing up this word knowledge because it means like a great, all-encompassing knowledge. It's kind of in contrast to the, the petty knowledge that the Gnostics have. He is praying that they would have a great knowledge concerning the Lord. So a wealth of it, not just a little bit. But when we think about knowledge, we have to think about where knowledge comes from. Where do we find the knowledge of God? Where do we find His will? Well, certainly it is found in the gospel. It's found in that great truth, the great truth found in verses 13 and 14. That He is the one who has transferred us. He's the one that's delivered us. He's forgiven us. He's done all of these things. He's redeemed us. This is where the knowledge of God is found. It's found in the gospel. And where do we learn the gospel? Well, we learn it from the word of God. So how do you find the knowledge of the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding? By consulting the world? How do we do it? By consulting the word of God. There's a humorous website, and I recommend you go on to it. It's called the Babylon Bee. So if you get anything from the sermon, go to the babylonbee.com. Okay? 
But the Babylon Bee is a, a humorous Christian website that it, it pokes fun at things that Christians do, but it's done in a really good way. It's by Christians, kind of joking about Christians. It's satire, and it's really funny. But they had an article titled the other day, Man Sitting Literally feet, Three Feet Away from Bible Ask God to Speak to Him. Man Sitting Three Feet Away from His Bible asks God to speak to him. And that's kind of like what it's like, isn't it? That we, we want to know God's will and we want God to somehow rumble our room and to speak down to us, thinking maybe he's going to write something in the sky or he's going to give some sort of sign. But friends, the will of God is found in the word of God. It's a very simple concept that you must hold on to, that the will of God is found in the word of God. It's like what we talked about a couple weeks ago with Psalm chapter 1, right? That blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but what does he do? He, he dwells upon the, the law of the Lord, meditates on it day and night. So if your instruction is, is coming from the word of God, it's going to be clear to you what the will of God is. It's going to be very clear to you on how to run your life and how to think through the situations that are going on within your life because you know the book. Get to know this book and you will get to know God's will. So it's silly to think of somebody sitting three feet away from a Bible asking God to speak to them. Why? Because this is what God spoke to us. This is the word of God. Somebody has said that if you want to hear God speak to you out loud, then read the Bible out loud. Because that's what it is. It is the word of God and this is where you find his will. When the world doesn't know something, what do they turn to? They turn to worldly wisdom. They turn to their friends and family to give them worldly guidance. They turn to Google to find a few answers. But the Christian, when they don't know the answer to something, when they're looking for the will of the Lord, they turn to God's book. And is that the way that you run your life, your daily life? You're thinking through, what does God want me to do? Does God want me to move here? Does he want me to take this job? Does he want me to take this promotion? What does he want me to do? Do you run it through the filter of God's word? And then on the other side of that, do you help others and give them biblical insight? I think this is a key thing in the context and the health of a church. That there are some of you who are here who are frankly far more mature in your understanding of scripture than others. That you've been around the block for a long time. You've been around the Bible a long time. And then there are others who are just starting out on their Christian journey. But how are you mature people in Christ? How are you helping those who are not as mature? How are you helping those who are just beginning in their faith to grow in knowledge like Paul is speaking of for the Colossians here? Do you help people grow in their knowledge? You know, I, I've heard it uh, several times. Sometimes you hear Christians give a little pushback in regard to knowledge, in, rega- in regard to growing in your knowledge. It'll be something like this. It'll be a verse taken out of context. Well, you know, knowledge puffs up, right? Knowledge puffs up. Like almost trying to deter Christians from growing in their knowledge of God. And how crazy is that? It's totally asinine. It's a good thing that we don't apply that to our doctors, right? That we don't want our doctors to have too much knowledge about the human body. The knowledge might puff up a little bit. No, because if you're truly gaining an understanding in the word of God and you're growing in the knowledge of God, you cannot grow in your knowledge of of the Grand Canyon and think more of yourself. You cannot grow in your knowledge of the human body and think, wow, I'm just so fantastic in terms of who you are and who you've made yourself to be. You would look at the creator and say how wonderful he is. 
Same thing with growing your knowledge of God. You cannot grow in your knowledge of God and the truths about God and how great and wonderful and omniscient and omnipotent and all those things that he is and become proud. To properly grow in your knowledge is to properly become humble. But this isn't all that Paul prays for in regard to these Colossians. There's a second big piece that he prays for and he prays for in regard to how they act. He prays that God would enable the Colossians with this knowledge that he's praying for them to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And there's got to be a huge connection between those two ideas. Between what you know and what you do. That's what Paul's praying for in regard to these Colossians. That they would grow in their knowledge and their understanding of of God's will. And that it would influence the way that they live their lives. That their knowledge would influence their conduct. So many Christians know plenty about the gospel. They know plenty about God's word. And they have all of this amassed knowledge. And they get it. But they don't let it shape the way they live. They don't let it shape their conduct. They don't seek to apply the knowledge of the gospel and the word... To every situation of life. And Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Is that they would not only be knowledgeable. Concerning God's will and concerning his word. But that they would act according to that knowledge. And those of you who have have thought. Maybe brought that over to other areas. Whether it's it's something like dieting. Well I know I shouldn't eat that ho-ho. Because it's going to make me more chubby. Or I know I need to work out. Because. (laughs) Thanks mom. Thanks dad. Unbelievable. She's at fault. She enables me. Every time we go to Rhode Island, she buys me this massive chocolate eclair that's that big. Amen. Thanks, Mom. So, but, but that's true, isn't it? That you know you shouldn't eat things that are unhealthy because what's it going to lead to? It's going to lead to unhealthiness. It's going to lead to weight gain, all of those kinds of things. And it's the same thing spiritually speaking. I mean, we know what to do. We see what the Bible has to say in regard to, to our lives and what God's will is for so that we can live in understanding. But we don't let it impact and influence the way that we live. Several years ago, it was the 100th anniversary at Fenway Park. And what they did, if some of you remember, it was on TV and they had all of the former Red Sox greats come out from the outfield wall from different parts of that wall and so they, they'd open one door and guys from my childhood like Nomar Garcia Parra and Pedro Martinez they would walk out and then they'd open another door and, and other people from other generations would come out from decades ago and I remember watching that and thinking of the older guys that played back in the 50s played back in the 60s and they were a bit slow walking in some of them were being wheelchaired out and in truth, it was a rare occurrence, and Bethany can testify that I started to cry. That I, I thought of these old ball players and how they used to fly around Fenway Park in the outfield. That they did all of these incredible things, hitting baseballs 400 feet. These men had an incredible knowledge of the game. That even though they were 80, 90 years old, or whatever they were, they knew how to field a ball. They knew how to hit a curveball. They knew how to throw a slider. But if you put a bat and ball in their hands in that moment, they would not be able to do it. They wouldn't be able to do it. And friends, although we have some knowledge of God, the truth is, like these old ball players, we're unable to conduct ourselves. We're unable to do it in and of ourselves. This is truth that we see throughout Scripture. 
That we cannot please God in and of our own power. That we need the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of Christ to empower us to obey. To empower us to act according to that knowledge. He knows that these Colossians, although they have some knowledge, they cannot enable themselves. They need the enablement from God to please God. As one author has said, a profound knowledge should profoundly affect one's walk. A profound knowledge should profoundly affect your walk. Look, look with me again at verse 9 into verse 10. And so from the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in Knowledge, And so that's the second major point that Paul is praying that God would enable the Colossians to live pleasing to Christ. First, by walking worthy of the Lord. So the knowledge of his will and wisdom and understanding leads us to walk in a manner of the Lord. In a way that's going to please God. We talk about this thing all the time because it's so big. But people, including ourselves, are living for pleasure. We are living to please ourselves. We are what's called hedonists, that we naturally want to gratify ourselves and that we're always groping for more and more from this world to please ourselves. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school this morning, about how oftentimes we're so anxious and it's not even for the things that we need, it's for the things that we want and we're trying to constantly accumulate these things and we get anxious because we're not able to have these things. And friends, that we would walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. It would be in a way that is fully pleasing to Him and not in a way that is pleasing to ourselves. Is that the intention of your life? Is that, again, how you're structuring your day? That it's it's in a way that is pleasing to God and not in a way that is pleasing to you. That you're trying to please Christ. Notice he goes on to say, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And there it is. That's our big idea. So you have that bearing fruit, that's your conduct. And then on the other side, you have that knowledge that you're growing in understanding and that that knowledge is influencing your conduct. Notice the next thing about this walk of life in the Lord. We are to walk powerfully in Him. In verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So being strengthened with power. Well, whose power? What power? It's the power of God. Paul's praying to God that these Colossians would be strengthened in God's power. He is not praying for self-empowerment. He's not praying for a a feeling of power. The big problem with self-empowerment is ourselves. Because we know that we're innately weak. He's not asking that the Colossians, that that they just kind of muster it up in and of themselves, but that they would be dependent on the power that comes from God. The word for power here is like an all-encompassing, like the word for knowledge. It's this all-encompassing, complete, and magnificent power that this is what would be dispensed onto the Colossians and that they would walk in it. And notice why you need the power from above. Because this life is a long walk. You need power for endurance, he says. You need power for patience. A better way to put that is a power for long-suffering. So God dispenses this power to us in order that we can endure and that we can have long-suffering. And those two ideas are parallel to each other. That, That if you're going to endure and you're going to walk worthy of the Lord consistently all of your days, then long-suffering needs to come along with that. 
So long-suffering and endurance are the two tracks upon which we ride in the power of God. So we walk worthy of the Lord by bearing fruit and growing in knowledge. We walk in the power of the Lord. And third, we walk thankfully in the Lord. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Let me ask you this. Who has any more reason to be thankful than a Christian? Unless somebody at your work is a Christian as well. There's nobody that you work with at your workplace that has more cause for gratitude than you. Because you're a Christian. And so we give thanks to the Father because we are a Christian. Because He's the one that has made us a Christian. The verse here says that He has qualified or enabled us to share in the inheritance as saints in the light. And what's that in contrast to? In verse 13, right? The kingdom of darkness. But God is the one who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. And what this means is simply what one commentator has said. That God the Father has Himself provided what sinners need to be considered worthy to join the people of God. It is God the Father who has Himself provided what we need to be considered worthy to join the people of God. God alone is is the one who has provided all we need to join God's family. Nobody likes to hear words like, you're not good enough. And some of you have heard those words from somebody, whether a parent or somebody in your life, that you're not good enough. And we don't like to hear those words, you're not good enough. And in context of the gospel, it is true. We're not good enough. We cannot be holy enough in and of ourselves to make ourselves part of God's family. And that rubs most people the wrong way. That if you're doing street evangelism and you're interacting with somebody on the street and you say, friend, you're not holy enough. You're a sinner. And if you transgress part of the law, you've transgressed all of the law. Therefore, you stand condemned before God. People do not hear, like to hear that they have transgressed anything. Or that they are the ones standing in the way of judgment. Or that they are not holy. It totally rubs people the wrong way. But that's the bad news in relation to what the gospel says. Because although it is true that you and I cannot enable and we cannot qualify ourselves to enter into the kingdom of God, the good news is that God is able to qualify and enable you to become part of God's kingdom. That's the good news. You have disqualified yourself, but God can qualify you for the kingdom. And so that gives sinners like us incredible hope. Because since it wasn't my power or my own qualifications or anything in Brandon that got him into the kingdom, it was God alone. And that means that I cannot disqualify myself from the kingdom. Because once you're brought into the kingdom, you cannot be taken out of the kingdom. So he brings us in. And we grow in our knowledge of the great king. And he qualifies us for the kingdom. And nothing can take you out of his hand. Genuine Christians have eternal security. You cannot lose your salvation. We have immense reason to be thankful. Like those men who were underground in Chile with darkness, with no sun to hit their face after a long day's work, to be delivered from that darkness. Do you think that they were grateful? Absolutely. Do you think that it was worth every penny of $20 million to deliver those guys from the pit of the earth? Absolutely. And so must we be thankful. Finally, notice with me a couple of the most beautiful verses in Paul's writing. In verses 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul prays this prayer for the Colossians on the foundation of verses 13 and 14. So the above verses 9 to 12 rest on 13 and 14. If, if 13 and 14 are not true, then 9 to 12 mean nothing. Think with me back to the Exodus in the beginning of the Bible. Remember that whole story about Moses. And he was a prominent man in Egypt. He's groomed for leadership. He's groomed for success. He ends up killing a man, you remember. And so he flees away from Egypt for 40 years. And after 40 years, the Lord comes to him in the bush, doesn't he? And he speaks to him out of that burning bush that was holy ground. And he tells him to go back to Egypt and to deliver the people of God from their slavery. He goes back and he performs these signs, right? He turns his staff into a snake. The other magicians, they turn their staffs into snake. But then Moses' snake comes and gobbles up the other staffs and the snakes and so forth. Of course, you remember the, the, the plagues that came with the gnats and the, and the frogs and the hail and all of those things that the Lord sent all the way until that tenth plague where the, the firstborn son was killed of every family in Egypt. And finally, the Pharaoh lets the people go. And we read a story like that in, in Exodus, and we wonder, don't we? we? We're in awe over the things that God did. So he brings them out, and then he parts the sea, right? The, the Hebrews all walk through it on dry ground, and then the Egyptians go thinking that they could walk through it, but then the Lord crashes the, ocean, the, the sea onto them and kills them. And you read that story, and you recognize that God alone is the one who delivered them out of Egypt, isn't he? God alone is worthy of the praise and glory for delivering the people out of slavery. And friends, although that's an incredible story with massive miracles throughout it, this might sound crazy to you, but I believe that God delivering all of us from the kingdom of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of his beloved son is a more powerful act than leading the people of Israel out of slavery. All that he did for the people of Israel and the Exodus displayed his power and glory over the greatest nation of the earth at that time with Egypt. But his power to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness displays the fact that he not only has the power over a puny nation like Egypt, but that he has the power of the most wicked kingdom ever conceived, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. He can go in and totally raid his people, raid Egypt and bring his people out of that land, out of slavery. And he can raid the kingdom of Satan and he can pluck us out of Satan's kingdom. It is a far greater miracle that God transferred you to his kingdom from Satan's kingdom than transferring the Hebrews from an earthly kingdom in Egypt. Far more, far more. And do you see the, the condescension that God had to do, that what he had to do and what he had to work? That God steps out and he delivered us. Adam and Eve, sinful children. They, they mess up in the garden. We get ourselves in this big mess of sin from then on. And we sign ourselves up for the kingdom of darkness. And what's he do? He comes in, he grabs us, and he takes us out. Every other world religion that you will encounter is a you need to do works in order to impress God. You need to do works in order to qualify yourself. You need to do works in order to make God want to take you out of wickedness. Every other religion, it is you reaching up and trying to reach to God and trying to get there on your own. 
It is only the Christian religion that says you cannot do it. But that God himself is the one who delivered you from your captivity in that domain of darkness. Just as God delivered the Israelites from the domain or kingdom of Egypt, he has delivered us from the kingdom of Satan. Like a fictional knight going in to save the princess, Jesus swoops in and saves his bride from the great dragon and brings her home to his beautiful kingdom of light. And how did he save us from that kingdom of darkness? Verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Through redemption. Through giving up himself and dying on a cross and dying for sinners. Redeeming a people for his name. That's a condescension that Jesus had to take on flesh. God had to take on flesh in order to redeem us. So for us, it's wonderful, right? Wow, we we no longer are a part of the kingdom of darkness, but we are a follower of Christ. What grace. But for God, for Christ, it was a great sacrifice. It was death. It was his blood being spilt out of his body. Do you realize and, and, and consider each day that it took a death of God to deliver you from Satan's stronghold? It took God dying to save you. It was nothing cheap. It was nothing weak. It was God sacrificing himself for you. The word redemption here has a connotation of slavery to it. There we were, slaves, members of the kingdom of darkness. And God comes in and he redeems us out of that kingdom and he brings us into his. And he doesn't do this. So in order to work it, and he does this to bring us to the kingdom of light. He does it to call us son and to call us daughter. So he doesn't just redeem us as slaves and say, You're my slaves now. He says, call me father. I am yours. You are mine. We have not only been redeemed, but we have been forgiven. We have not only been redeemed from that slave market, out of that kingdom of darkness, but all the things that we have done against the king of that kingdom and against the kingdom itself, all of those things have been forgiven. There's nothing between our souls and the Savior. It's been forgiven. What a relief it is to see these words that not only positionally have we been redeemed out, but we've been forgiven of all our transgressions. Friends, which kingdom are you a member of? Who is it that you're following after? Do you follow after King Jesus and his kingdom? Do you follow after Satan and his kingdom? Are you a son or daughter of God in the kingdom of light? What great cause we have for thankfulness then. What purpose we have to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him. Paul is asking that God would fill the Colossians with wisdom and with understanding. He's asking God that they be strengthened by His power. And He's asking in this, all of this in light of what God has done for them. That they would be grateful to God for what He has done in their lives in redemption and forgiveness. So friends, let me ask you, in light of your great deliverance. Are you growing in the knowledge of God? And if so, is that knowledge affecting your conduct? Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this prayer of Paul for the Colossians and we pray it for ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you'll forgive us for our sins. We thank you for our forgiveness. We thank you for our redemption. We thank you for being transferred and delivered from wickedness into a kingdom that we do not deserve to belong to in the kingdom of light.
We're thankful to be, have the opportunity to follow after a great king. And we look forward for that king to ride again and to come on a white horse to obliterate and demolish all evil.